0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today has written a book about a man who was figuratively and almost literally larger than life, a man who was an entertainment giant and simultaneously an independent artist who paid for his independence in many ways. That filmmaker, writer, and actor was Orson Welles, and my guest is Joseph McBride, film scholar, former associate of Orson Welles, and author of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles? A Portrait of an Independent Career, published by the University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the usual places. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you, Ira.
0: Thank you. You've written previous books on Orson Welles. Why did you decide to write a third one and one that has a different perspective on Welles than most people or most critics have thought about?
1: Yeah, uh, I... First book I did on him was uh, when I was 19 years old at college at the University of Wisconsin. I was right around the corner from where he lived. I found out later when he was 10 years old he spent a year in Madison. Uh, I wrote a critical study of his films for uh, the British Film Institute came out in 1972, but he kept working until the end of his life in 1985. And I did, the second book was the study of his career as an actor. It's the only book about his acting career, Orson Welles, actor and director. But after a long time, I I updated the 72 book, but I, I, I had acted in The Other Side of the Wind, his major project of his later years, which he began in 1970. And I spent more than five years acting in that. And that film got stalled for a variety of legal and political and contract reasons. And it wasn't finished by the time he he died, and so I, I I guess I wrote whatever happened to Orson Welles because I wanted to survey his his later career, especially from 1970 to 85. He came back to the U.S. in, in 1970 from a long exile in Europe. He had been blacklisted, and and he he sought artistic freedom in Europe, and but uh, he came back. He thought the U.S. would be more hospitable to him when things were changing uh, with the youth movement and things. He found that the studios were still uh, against him, but he was working totally independently with his own money. But most people in those days didn't understand that. They thought he was this uh, fat guy, basically, who sat around doing TV commercials and drinking wine. And, you know, they didn't realize he was making all these films constantly for 15 years. The New York Times, for example, when he died. The obituary said he'd been inactive as a director for the last several years, and they actually had to run a correction because it was so wildly untrue, but they didn't see the films mostly. Most of them were unfinished. However, F for Fake came out in 1973. That didn't get seen much in the U.S. It's a marvelous film, an essay film, as he called it, and he he had another theatrical release filming Othello in 1978, and that hardly got shown in the U.S., and, and so his career was sort of invisible to most people. And, I wanted to uh, explain what he had done. And also I saw all these uh, films. I've seen almost all of his unfinished work and, uh, but more and more of his work keeps coming out. And finally the other side of the wind came out in 2018. And I have a new epilogue on that in, in uh, whatever happened to Orson Welles. Plus his early film, too much Johnson was rediscovered miraculously. This is pre citizen Kane film that he made that wasn't finished at the time. And, uh, so that's what the epilogue contains. But I, when I, when I looked at his independent career in the seventies and eighties, I realized, and I, I owe a debt to my former uh, college colleague, Douglas Gomery, who's a distinguished film scholar. He, uh, he, he postulated that Wells was always an independent artist, even when he worked briefly for major studios, that he used the resources of major studios to make very avant garde, rather independent films and he had a, such a contract that he was relatively independent as a studio filmmaker and so I realized I had to look back over his whole career to establish uh, okay he was independent throughout his career and he became totally independent later uh, ba- basically making literally home movies he was shooting out of his home a lot and uh, it's his fascinating career but to understand that you have to see the totality of his career and I so I surveyed all his career from a fresh angle I tried to not just reiterate what had been written before, but come up with new uh, documents and new interviews and new material. And I, uh, so I took about five years to write that book. It was a complex book, also to boil it down into a reasonable size, because you could spend like Simon Callow. I admire him, but I don't envy him. He's doing biography of Wells. He's on volume four, I guess. Now and it's taking him. 20-plus years. He does other things, too. He's a distinguished actor. But uh, I didn't want to go on forever with that book. But, uh, uh, you know, keep, keeping a book shorter is more difficult than writing writing a long book. I think.
0: You, you could have been the Orson Welles of the literary world by not finishing yeah. any of these books. But That's you did. true. <laughs> That's true.
1: Yeah, it was a struggle to finish but yeah.
0: I, the question I'm about to ask you could elicit an answer that would take not only this show, but probably the next 12 hours to three <laughs> weeks. But I, in a capsule form, if you could... What happened to Orson Welles after the success, well, initially it wasn't a success, but of the success of Citizen Kane, where he did complete the film, to where he became, as you say, working on films and not completing them for for various reasons, legal, possibly financial, etc.?
1: Well, Citizen Kane was almost destroyed uh, because he provoked William Randolph Hearst who was kind of uh, it was sort of a, a clay about Hearst and the Hearst organization mounted a campaign against the film and the Hollywood studios were so upset with Hearst's uh, threats against them to expose all kinds of things about them and they they mounted a uh, campaign to buy the negative from RKO for 800,000 dollars and burn it and it came close to happening George Schaefer the executive at uh, RKO uh, stood fast behind Wells and Wells Schaefer prevented that, but then Hearst banned advertising for the film, and no major theater chain would play the film out of deference to Hearst. So they had to play in independent theaters. It didn't get a lot of distribution, even though it got fabulous reviews. So it didn't make a profit until it was reissued until 1956. But he did the Magnificent Ambersons, which is another great film for RKO. But it got all slashed up in his absence. He was in South America making a documentary for the U.S. government. And that's another long story. And that was terminated by RKO and and the government because he ran afoul of uh, both the Brazilian and American governments and RKO because he was mixing races in the film. He was dealing a lot with the black culture in in Brazil and the poverty in Brazil. And he was always a troublemaker, which is one of the things I like about him. And Spike Lee does the same thing. He's a troublemaker and stirs things up and gets people. Well's Well's offended every establishment he ever uh, dealt with. So they they fired him, and then he began a career struggling to make some studio films. He made a couple under sort of semi-compromising conditions. Well, he made The Stranger Lady from Shanghai and Macbeth. And then The Blacklist came in, and he was on the target, and so he went to Europe. Right after the the House Committee on American Activities Committee had their hearings, he saw the handwriting on the wall, and he went to Europe. And then he made a, a kind of shoestring productions on his own, and uh, the, so the, the effect of Kane really uh, was strong in his career. It was kind of an act of hubris, in a sense, for a young man of 24 to take on America's greatest press lord, who was kind of a basically a fascistic character who had supported Hitler and all kinds of things. And, you know, it was very ballsy move, but it was damaging to his career. And And some of the myths that were created, like when he was fired for going over budget on it's all true. That's the excuse they made. I found documents that prove that he was actually uh, about $450,000 under budget when he was fired for going over budget. And he never knew uh, the extent of which he was under budget because I found a transcript of a telephone conversation between two RKO executives. And they said, we're not telling him what the real budget of the film is. We don't want him to know. Can you imagine? <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> he didn't know the budget. Uh, it was $1.2 million and And surmise that it was probably a million but he was way under budget when he was fired for going over budget and so that and they spread a lot of damaging stories about him being a wastrel and and that that legend persists to today people uh, uh, you know Jonathan Rosenbaum another wells critic said the true scandal of wells's career was that he spent his own money to make films which you're not supposed to do both out of prudence but also it it means that you are free of the commercial system if you do that and that that's anathema to the Hollywood system and capitalistic system and so they didn't like his freedom and uh, but he, you know he paid a price for his freedom because it took him a long time to get money for films and a lot of projects fell through and some didn't get finished but uh, it's it's a corollary of him being independent which he really valued and we that's one reason we like his films because they are so personal and so independent
0: How did you get recruited to the other side of the wind and that film, seemed to be the Moby Dick of Orson Welles, with Hollywood being Moby Dick, not the film itself. Sure. Uh, at least that's yeah. my take on it. It may not be yours, but how did you get recruited to the film?
1: Yeah, that was, uh, you know, he didn't really expect Hollywood to back that film. It's kind of a, a, a big slam against Hollywood. It's it's a film about the Hollywood system falling apart as it was around 1970 and the young people taking over, and it's a collision between what we consider the easy rider Era and, and the old system, an old director played by John houston trying to make a comeback in you know, a Hollywood dominated by young people. And he's, it all takes place at his 70th birthday party where all the young people are there meeting this old guy. And he winds up, he, he, he can't finish a film like Wells. And he's trying to raise end money for the film. And it's a big calamity. And he dies at the end of the story. You know, when I I met him, he had been thinking about this film since Ernest Hemingway killed himself in 1961. The character of Jake Hannaford is modeled mostly on Hemingway, but also on several uh, directors, macho kind of directors. And I was on the set when Richard Wilson, Wells' right-hand man in his early days, said, Orson, what is this movie about? And he said, it's an attack on machoism, or what we would call machismo now. And uh, it is really satirizing the He-Man Hemingway kind of guy who's secretly insecure and sexually ambiguous, et cetera. And a lot of people didn't get that when the film came out because the current climate is very simplistic and they saw this guy who's he's sort of a poster child for the Me Too movement. He's an old male chauvinist and but Wells is not celebrating that. He's he's attacking that. But anyway, uh, I I was in Hollywood in nineteen seventy. The first time I went there was to interview John Ford who it's my favorite director, and I was writing a book about him with Michael Wilmington. And I got an interview with Ford, which was difficult to do, and I, I went to visit him. It turned out to be the last day of his career. That's another story. He retired in the course of our interview. He realized his career was ending because he wasn't getting a phone call about a project that he was trying to do. And The same day, I met Jean Renoir, and then I met Orson Welles two days later, my three favorite directors in one week. Pretty good. I met Peter Booker. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. I, I thought this week was going to be, every week in Hollywood would be like this. I didn't realize this was the pinnacle. <laughs> you know, everything was downhill for me.
0: <laughs> sort of <laughs> like Orson Welles. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. That He said about Kane, you know, I started at the top and it's all been downhill. Ever since. <laughs> um, but I met Peter Bogdanovich, who was a young uh, filmmaker critic, and, and uh, I emulated him because he was interviewing great directors, and he became a director, and I thought you know, it was the kind of path I'd like to follow. And I was interviewing great directors. and, and uh, But I, I got Peter's phone number from a, a guy at Larry Edmund's bookshop. And I called him and, and he said, I'm on the other line with Orson. And I, I thought Wells was in Europe all those years. I'd read little items in Variety that he was in Yugoslavia doing something. And I had no idea he was back in Hollywood. He had come back to work on a couple of projects. And Peter's came back and he said, Orson would like you to call him tomorrow at this number. And he, so I called him. The next day and he said we're about to start shooting a film would you like to be in it and i was <laughs> flabbergasted because i'd never really acted and uh, i thought i couldn't imagine being in a feature so I, I said something kind of stupid i said is this going to be a feature-length film and, and he he laughed he said well we certainly hope so But I realized later that was a good question inadvertently (laughs) because it took forever to become a feature like that. But but then I went to see him and I spent three hours talking to him about everything I wanted to talk to him. And he had been reading some of my work on him because I sent copies of magazines and a book in which I had articles on his films that were from my work in progress. And I sent them to his lawyer. I didn't know anywhere else to send them. And he, he actually had them and read them and. He said, you're the only critic who understands what I'm trying to do. He said, you're my favorite film critic. I, I was floored. Nice. I thought, wow, so nice. And then by the weekend, I was in this film, the other side of it, the first day of shooting uh, at Wells' home. Peter Bogdanovich and I played a pair of squabbling young film critics. Later, Peter was switched to a different role because he was about to do The Last Picture Show, which made him famous. And then Wells put him in a bigger part as, as a hotshot young director who's kind of the rival uh, and, and benefactor of the old man. And then somebody else, we reshot some of the scenes that Peter had been in playing the critic. But Wells thought I was amusing as this earnest young film critic. And he kind of egged me on and, and, and other people in the film to play sort of slightly or somewhat exaggerated versions of ourselves. And I was this obnoxious film buff critic who would go around and pepper John Houston with questions for a book I was writing about him. And they were kind of slightly silly film buff questions. So before every uh, scene, Wells would spend an hour with me talking about the questions I would ask. And then he would take ideas and then reject others. And then he'd write it out. And then I had to follow the script exactly. But this went on for five years. It was just really an education. It was kind of my film school. And I got to meet all these fabulous people who were in the film and watch him shoot. It was invaluable. I think he needed a historian on the set. I think that's one reason I was cast because so many myths and lies and fabrications have been printed about him. But, you know, I'm a good reporter and I reported on what was happening. And he would call me over sometimes while he was shooting and explain why he was doing something or tell stories about it. And anyway, so that's the genesis of uh, my work with him. When the film finally, I, I tried for years to, Raise end money for the film after he died. I tried to, you know, with the cinematographer Gary Graver, who was really his most loyal assistant. He and I tried to raise money from various sources, and the closest we got was Showtime was interested. The major studios and big Hollywood names all couldn't figure out the film, and they turned it down again. Uh, but Showtime, I thought, let's go to a cable channel. That's a new thing and. Wells would probably like that, you know, and and it fell through for a variety of reasons. And then I got fired from the film by Peter Bogdanovich and Oya Kodar, Wells' companion, because they thought they didn't need me anymore. And I just thought, okay, I'll I'll just leave quietly because I don't want to cause any more trouble for the film. And it finally, uh, Philip Jan Rimza, who's a young European producer, spent nine years negotiating with Oya Kodar for her rights and, and the Iranian family that owned half of the film we had been negotiating with them before philip came in but anyway he worked out all the complicated details he and frank marshall and they put together the film beautifully put it together and bob morowski did a great job editing it i was a consultant in the final form of it with jonathan rosenbaum and I actually redubbed 18 lines of my dialogue, which was very surreal to be doing my lines again after 40, 40 some years. When I when they asked me to come in and they said, "Oh, would you come in and dub some lines?" I said, "Oh, okay." I said, "Don't I sound different? You know, I'm older and I, you know, I smoked for a long time." And uh, they said, "No, you sound about the same." But if not, we could fiddle with it, and nobody can really tell. You know, the lines are uh, they sound like I did back then.
0: Two quick things. One is. You mentioned about how you got Peter McDonovich's phone number. As You mentioned Larry Edmonds' bookstore.
1: Yeah, it's still there, I believe. I haven't been in Hollywood for a few years, but um, last I checked, it's still there, and it's on Hollywood Boulevard. It's a wonderful uh, old bookstore. It's been around forever, and they have a lot of used film books and stills and new books, and they have signings of books, and it's kind of a mecca for uh, film people. One, one day I was browsing through the film magazines. and the Ray was standing next to me looking through film magazines, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of, that kind of place. <laughs> so it's a wonderful meeting. ground. But the man who gave me the number, Milt Lubavisky, was one of the owners and he was a pal of Peter's. So he was the contact. I, I just, you know, being a reporter, I kind of know who to ask to find somebody. And Peter was very hospitable. And I went to his house and Talk to him about Wells and Ford because he, he knew all the inside stuff that nobody else knew at the time, and he, he was helpful in answering
0: questions. Didn't, didn't keep him from firing you later on, though.
1: So. No, well, you know, he's, uh, yeah. as Edward Albee says, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, we'll that's blood under the bridge. You
0: know?
1: <laughs> There's a technical question
0: for you. Were you thinking ahead in, in the interviews you did with these acclaimed directors? Did you record the interview as opposed to just taking notes?
1: Yeah, most of them I recorded. Almost all, and I've got. I I published a lot of interviews with George Cukor and Billy Wilder, and I did a book Hawks on Hawks with Howard Hawks, and I spent seven years recording interviews with him and put that together into a book. And and then uh, I've done three major biographies of Ford Capra and Spielberg, and I did a lot of interviews with Capra, most recorded, and sometimes I took notes, and I've interviewed. Thousands of people uh, for these books.
0: But have you thought about digitizing some of those interviews so that people can hear them?
1: That's a good question. I have a collection of my papers at the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, and I'm going to give them all the tapes. And uh, I've digitized some of my own tapes, you know, for research purposes and other books, like I did two books on the Kennedy assassination. I interviewed some important witnesses, for example, and people involved in all that should be digitized because tapes deteriorate, and even a DVD or a CD can can get damaged. But, you know, we'll do that eventually.
0: Good. Now, did your research for this current book change your mind about any aspect of Orson Wells? You had written the other books on him. Now, you had this book. Again, that was called Whatever Happened to Orson Wells? A Portrait of an Independent Career. Did your mind get changed at all by what you had found in your research for that book?
1: Well, I think it fleshed out a number of things that were unclear because Wells' career is so complex and they're conflicting stories. And, you know, I really tried to pinpoint things that I mentioned that I found out exactly why he was fired under false circumstances for Miss ultra. But another big area was the blacklist. James Narimore, who I think wrote the best critical study of Wells called The Magic World of Orson Welles, had gotten Wells' FBI files And he wrote an article about it, but he didn't think Wells was blacklisted because people think of the Hollywood 10 and then other people who were called before HUAC. Wells was never called before HUAC, although he said he wanted to be and they didn't call him. He was never a communist. They called mostly people who had been communists and tried to force them to name names. He never would have named names, but he was the FBI uh, tried to find uh, that he was a communist, and they actually said in one document, we've, we haven't been able to find any evidence. But he supported a lot of progressive causes throughout his life. So he's considered like what they used to call a fellow traveler, a premature anti-fascist, etc.
0: Or useful and, idiot could be another one, too, if you yeah, go back yeah. to Stalin.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. He But he was anti-Stalin, you know, of course. And he was actually, he wasn't the kind of person who liked to join organizations, and he was not doctrinaire. so. He said the Hollywood communists didn't like him particularly. He was too much of a, a maverick. Even that establishment—he
0: <laughs> yeah, he was too independent for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, too in, uh, Yeah, no. uh, true, true. And no. uh, so he—you uh, know—I found out a lot of details about that, and I really researched the political context that helped drive him out of the U.S. and it helps underpin his work. You know, because Kane is a very anti-fascist work, and he, he had other projects that were very political, like Mister Cotton in Europe. Is kind of an allegory of. He plays a character who's modeled on Stalin, and then the the young investigator he hires to research his life so he can kill his opponents is is cast to look like Richard Nixon. So it's kind of a allegory of Stalin versus Nixon. Wells is very uh, it, Wells's work when he was abroad was was quite critical of American society. He did did a series called Around the World with Orson Welles for British television, which is all about independence and very implicitly critical of American society uh, and European society is better in different ways in his, his view than American society. So I, I proved pretty much that he was listed or blacklisted. You know, there are a lot of people who are in the gray area, but he, he did work for some major studios in the 50s. When he was abroad, he would act in some films for Fox. So it wasn't completely tight, but Fox was run by Daryl Zanuck, who was a friend of his and supported him. But he only worked in America. He came back in 53, and he, he did some work for CBS for several years. And to do that, he would have had to write a letter to CBS, which is what people did to clear themselves with a particular network. He would have had to say, I'm sorry for my political views, and you know, I, I, I repent my views or whatever. But you didn't have to name names. I've seen some letters like that. John Houseman wrote one. Philip Dunn wrote one, Rita Hayworth, who was his wife, had to write one. So he probably wrote a letter to William S. Paley, the head of CBS, but it hasn't turned up. But then he began to work more steadily in Hollywood after the blacklist was starting to loosen in the late 50s. And Desi Liu, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, brought him in to work on a couple of projects. And, and uh, De- Lucy had been a communist, as people probably know. In her youth, briefly, and she got out of trouble by going to Hueck and and playing the scatterbrained Lucy character in front of HUAC, which is a work of genius, and said, Oh, I didn't know what I was doing, and blah, blah, blah. You know, they said, Okay, just be a good girl from now on.
0: Well, these days, I think one of the former CIA directors used to be a communist, so it's amazing how that all can change. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, things
1: change. In the late 50s, the Blacklist was falling apart, and so he got to direct Touch of Evil for Universal, which was a great film, but again, when they, He said they liked the film as he was shooting it, and then they saw the whole film put together and they were horrified. It's a film against police abuse of authority and a strong statement about that. But it's, it's a very dark film noir. And they, um, they, they took him off the film and they re-edited the film and they had some other guy come in and shoot scenes to explain certain things. And, and so he was very traumatized by that. And I think he really didn't want to work for Major Studios after that trauma.
0: We only have a couple minutes left, so I wanted to get your thoughts on, because you've devoted so much time and so many books to Orson Welles, what your take on Orson Welles is today. Is he higher, in a sense, in your mind than he was when you first started writing about him, or larger? Is he more complex than when you first started writing about him, or has it been the other way around?
1: Well... I think I may do another book on him when I'm 90 years old called Orson Welles, The Last Word. I'm sure I'll do another one. You know, you don't, when you start writing a book, you don't realize it. You have to keep doing it for your whole life. I think I understand a lot more about him by knowing him, working with him, and also doing a lot of research. And also, many other scholars have done valuable research on him. It's a whole industry of people writing and discovering new things and new films keep coming out. and. New facets of him keep coming out. He's a very multifaceted person. He's too big for any one person to encompass. I think that my basic view of him is he was a heroic figure in persevering despite all the obstacles that were thrown in his way. And rather than seeing him as, as a guy who couldn't finish films, I think that even the unfinished films have great merit. Like, for example, does anybody criticize Schubert for writing the unfinished symphony or or Kafka for not finishing his novels? you know uh, i mean that's kind of unique to film because film costs a lot of money but you know it's mostly his money and uh, i think he was a heroic figure and, and he just did it his way and he, he paid the price and he suffered a lot of setbacks and frustrations and he sometimes regretted he had continued in films he said his first wife virginia said he should have stayed in the theater and he said maybe she was right but i fell in love with the films because i fell in love with my girl and i don't want to abandon her but you know theater it was cheaper he could have like his julius caesar which was very innovative anti-fascist work cost twelve thousand dollars to put on and he did it out of his radio earnings and you know theater is now more expensive but he could have done you know but if he were around today uh, he'd be making six or ten films a year with digital technology it wouldn't cost him very much and he'd make some marvelous innovative work and, he was always a groundbreaker and iconoclast artistically too. You know, he was advancing. Uh, Walter Murch was on our campus. He did the restoration of Touch of Evil based on Wells's notes, and I was a consultant on that. And he's a great editor and sound designer. And he said that the film industry likes people to be about six seconds ahead of the time, you know, <laughs> just a little bit, you know, pushing the envelope. But he said Wells was twenty or thirty years ahead of his time. We're still catching up to things that he was doing, you know, uh, Merch said, I thought I'd invented a certain kind of sound mixing with American graffiti. And I was thrilled to find out that Wells had done it already in 1957 with Touch of Evil. And that's the kind of guy he is. We're still catching up to him. And we're still seeing new films. Don Quixote hasn't been finished a project he worked on for a long time. Somebody needs to work on that. And I don't have 30 years to do it. But if there's anybody out there listening who wants to spend 30 years on a Wells project, that's a great one to do. It's a a cornucopia of riches we keep learning new things about this man.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Joseph McBride, film scholar, former associate of Orson Welles and author of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles? A Portrait of an Independent Career, published by the University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. Joe, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Ira. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks for having me.
0: And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.